welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. It's got a, uh... <laughs> I was addicted to the hokey pokey. Oh, you were? Yes, but I've since turned myself around. (laughs) Adventurers, welcome to episode 68 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. King Scott here. And this is just Patrick. And I hope everyone has had a great week. We're recording this just slightly before Gen Con, and everyone should be packing up either on their way or getting ready and frothing at the mouth, ready to go and get some gaming in, while the rest of us are just going to be living vicariously through you all. So, Patrick, I will be stalking you on social media for the next week. Oh, and there's going to be a whole bunch going up. By the time this airs, it is over and done with. So get on there and check out some pictures and whatnot. We're going to have the wrap-up coming in like an episode or two. Maybe I can even con Teacher Ryan into joining me. He's going to be a, kind of the right-hand man for the, the whole thing. We're going to do a lot of gaming together. Going to meet up with Will. Lots of things going on at Gen Con. But this being pre-Gen Con, we've got a lot to talk about today, including recent plays like Green team wins. You're going to talk a little Summoner Wars, Hidden Leaders, the 8-bit breakdown goes to Barrage, and Explorer Josh joins us for some Lost Loot. He's talking Merchants of Magic before we wrap things up today with our adventures on the horizon for upcoming Kickstarter. Actually, I think by the time this airs, it'll be live on Kickstarter. Journey into the Beyond. We got a good one today, Scott. That we definitely do. Now, Looking back a few episodes, we had a chance to talk with our friend Clemens Franz about his upcoming game, Magical Friends. And how to summon them. Yes, yes. It went through the Kickstarter and things just weren't clicking there. So he figured, hey, let's rework this a little bit and get it back out here. So guess what? It's coming back to Kickstarter. Just an awesome game. I mean, go back, listen to our episode on that. So much fun, such an interesting idea of how you play and the way you can like cleverly and yet cutely backstab your friends. <laughs> Scott, you said a couple episodes ago, I'm looking at your magical friends. That was our side quest of episode 31. That was almost a year ago that we had Clemens on. I know that a lot of the uh, the actual gameplay and whatnot is still pertinent, so that episode is still quite relevant. I am going to, last time I said, oh, I'm going to be backer number one, I ended up as backer number four. So Ooh. rarely does life give us a second chance. <laughs> but when it does, oh, you got to grab for it. Yeah, so definitely hoping to be backer number one. Speaking of Kickstarters... ISS Vanguard Wave 1 shipping, it's coming. They got pictures of the boxes. I don't have my tracking yet, but Awaken Realms ISS Vanguard is soon to be on the table, and I can't wait, Scott. This As soon as we get it, we're going to put off all the games that we have backlogged to get on the show for review, and that is immediately going to skip to the front of the line. Well, I, I was going to ask you if you uh, were excited about it, but I guess you kind of covered it. You know what? I went into this kind of blind. I... It's space, and I 
think it's like a tainted grailish storytelling thing. I don't know. I don't want to mislead anyone. So I can't, I can't attest to what the game is. I was just like, okay, it's Awakened Realms. It looks cool. I'm backing it. So I know very little about it. So it's going to be a surprise for, for me to let alone us. And I'm getting excited to share some thoughts on it. Yes, still totally excited. That doesn't mean that it won't completely fall flat because I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but I'm getting myself into it. <laughs> well, that is fantastic. Whenever you're traveling, like, oh, I don't know, coming back home from Gen Con or going to a con, Everdell now has an app that you can play the game on. Ooh. This is a fantastic game. Once again, uh, we did this episode one or Four. two or three. Four it was. Four? Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> God, I can't believe we've done this many episodes. I honestly am boggled that we're still doing this. But um, <laughs> we have a lot of confidence in ourselves. <laughs> well, hey, you look at it and you think we're going to go 10 and that's all the interest we're going to have. But it's just been building and building and building. And I've had an absolute blast with this and look forward to much more. But back to Everdell, you got it on the App Store now. You can download it. You can play it on your phone. You can play it wherever the hell you want to. Oh, sorry. Sorry, kids. Scott, do you play a lot of apps on your phone, like board game apps? <sighs> Not really, to be honest. I think a lot of times, like, I'll take my turn on BGA on my phone. Mm -hmm. I know one thing, whenever you're playing it on your computer, it makes it a little bit smaller to play. So it's a little bit more compact to play instead of getting everything out on the board. Right, right. On your phone, I think it makes it almost a little too small to really enjoy the aspect of playing it. Well, some apps now, do it, if okay. it, Yeah, I was going to say, if, if, if an app is set up for the game itself... Sure, I'll give it a try, but I just never have really gotten into doing it that much. Yeah, fair enough. I, I got to say, I'm still like every other day playing Terraforming Mars uh, via app, Through the Ages via app. I got Spirit Island, <laughs> that app, Maracaibo. I got that app on my phone. I just got on tour from Board Game Tables. Most recently, Wingspan. Got into Wingspan and I'm playing with my with my brother and my buddy Mike. All, like, I don't know, probably twice a week we'll break out Wingspan and... and <laughs> <laughs> Scott, I'm crushing them. Humble brag. I'm absolutely <laughs> crushing. <laughs> but I, I think that's still something that's so neat. This will come up later on with our level ups, but I was away for the weekend for camping. And still so many people don't know whenever I say, yeah, I'm part of a board game podcast. Oh, so you talk about Monopoly and sorry. It's just not. Yep. <laughs> After a long sigh, I just say, nope. But no, I like that. Maybe I'm going to go along with it now and just say, yeah, yeah. With all the <laughs> strategies behind Monopoly, you could play this thing so many different ways. Anyway, I digress. Davy Jones Locker, The Kraken Wakes. We talked about this one in the back half of episode 65, the hunger episode. Kraken Wakes uh, went up by the time this episode airs. We've got three days left to back it. It is already funded when we recorded way back on like August 1st. So this thing came out and within a day, 100% funded. Uh, congrats to the team behind Davy Jones Locker, The Kraken Wakes. Give it a look. Yeah, great, great stuff there. I know whenever I go through Facebook, the ad comes up for that, and I'm just like drawn in every single time. And I'm like, I'm going to back it. I'm going to back it. I swear I'm going to back it. <laughs> but then I have to remember I have a wife that checks things. Anyway. Anyway. How about some recent <laughs> adventures? That sounds good to me. What do you want to lead off with? 
Hey, good segue. Hidden Leaders. Hidden Leaders is the game I want to talk about today. This is published by BFF Games. They actually had this Kickstarter back in 2021, and it was one that we featured in an adventure on the horizon all the way back in episode 14. This is actually, Scott, this is one of the very first publishers that gave us a a review copy of a game. Now, granted, it was prototype. We ended up giving it away through a contest when when we did that back on the show. But uh, episode 14, their Kickstarter came in, what, a month ago, two months ago? I think so. I think it was, yes. Okay, so their deal was, you know, give us some coverage. We'll send you a a Kickstarter copy of the game whenever it's complete. So it comes in. I was like, Scott, you can have this. Thanks for being a part of the show. Here, this is yours. And then I didn't tell you. But like two weeks later, I get another box in the mail. I was like, oh, what is this? I open it up and it's Hidden Leaders. <laughs> oh, uh, what? <laughs> a second copy of Hidden Leaders. So I messaged them. I was like, hey, guys, you know, you sent me a second one by accident. I can send it back. I can forward it. They're like, you know what? Go ahead and hang on to it. Use it as a giveaway or something. So I thought oh, that'd be a cool one for a giveaway to meet up or something. But nevertheless, I wanted to shine some extra light on it because the Kickstarter did fulfill. They sent us the copy. Now, you know me, Scott. I don't revisit games all that often. I'm not a, I'm not right. a game revisitor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But back at Origins, the Dead Alive guys, they're playing this a good bit with Will, and I found myself joining in on some of the games of it. Hidden Leaders, in this game, players kind of play that man in the shadows role, where you influence things that are happening, trying to produce results according to your own personal motives. In this game, your personal motive is to see one of four factions win. Well, two, depending on the card that you're dealt. Let's start here. You've got a main board, which is basically 13 spaces going along this horizontal track from left to right. And there's a green and a red marker, which both begin on space number four. Now, beyond that, this is a card game. Each turn, you have the option to draw from the face-up tavern or blind from the deck. And then you get to play a card from your hand. And every one of the cards deals with moving either the red marker or the green marker, or both. And they usually have abilities that mess with other players' cards in play, or their hand. So an easy-to-understand system that introduces decisions that actually give the game a a good bit of a skill curve. Now, at the end of the game, the winning faction is going to be based on the positioning of the red and the green pieces on that track. So, red wins if it is two spaces ahead of green. Vice versa for green. Green will win if it's two ahead of red. Blue will win if the red and green marker are either on the same space or adjacent. Black wins if both markers are on the 10 or further on that track. So how do you know which faction you're hoping to see win? Well, at the start of the game, everybody's going to get a leader that usually has two colors on it. So you win so long as either one of those, if you get a blue leader, uh, a leader that's blue and red, You want to see either blue win or red win. That's how you win the game. Now, obviously, that can lead to ties. How do we break them? Let's suppose that red won. I have a red leader, and so do you, Scott. Who played more red cards? Scott did. Mm. Scott wins the game. Now, way back in episode 14, when we talked about this, uh, it was after playing it several times two-player with my brother, and I thought the game was pretty darn good. But... There's a bit of deducing what the other player might be up to and responding accordingly. Good game. That said, when you introduce a third or a fourth player, holy cow, the game sings, Scott. (laughs) Dude, it's a constant struggle to get those markers to where you want them. Like, you can have them positioned well at the end of your turn, and then if there's three turns before you're up again, it's going to be totally different. But you can start to suss out what other people are trying to do, see if they're in the same faction, shooting for the same victory. Because if they are... Now you got to worry about playing more cards of that color so that you win the tiebreaker. Here's the beauty. This game's actually pretty rules light. Uh, I think the BGG weight is under two, and the playtime's like 25, 30 minutes. 
Excellent little game. Cool artwork, kind of comic book style. Nice compact box with a lot of game in it. And they got an expansion coming October 25th. I think it's coming to Kickstarter. Maybe GameFound. Probably Kickstarter because that's where they did their first one. But they've got an expansion, Hidden Leaders, coming October 25th. Something to keep our eyes on. I did get in on one game with you guys at Origins. Mm -hmm. It is a lighter game. But unfortunately, a lot of times things are going on. I'm busy talking with people, saying hi about this, and I'm trying to pay attention. But this is one of those games where I go into, I'm going to lose. <laughs> I know I'm going to lose. I'm horrible at sussing people out. So I just go in with the old idea. We're going to have fun here and we're going to play it. And I'm going to congratulate everyone else that wins. But then this is one of those ones that you win by accident sometimes. And you sit there and I'm like, you're having like a Sally Field moment where like, I won, I won, you like me, you really like me. Yeah, you have a lot of strategies going on trying to figure out what's going to win, what combinations do you want here and there to be able to win this game. But sometimes it gets a little bit away from you because you're busy co focusing on this one. And then all of a sudden this other one comes up. And like you said, it there is a lot of game in this little box. It does keep your mind going. So that's really a great thing with it. Yeah, there's something with that extra player count, the three or four players where uh, the, the colors of the leader start to really matter. So if you have, in that example, the blue and the red leader, blue can win if those markers are adjacent. Red can win if red is way ahead. And something right. can happen where if I'm shooting for red to win and I start moving that red marker up and then somebody else is doing it to green and they keep staying neck and neck, well, then I can fall back on, well, I do have blue. And blue wants to see them together. So I'll keep pushing that red. If that player keeps pushing the green, then I kind of know that they're green. And I'm just going to focus on my blue and try and keep them close together. All the while, there's that other player who's black. And he's like, okay, I just need them both to be at the 10 plus. And they see us, mm -hmm. you know, jockeying, trying to, to bump one ahead of the other. And the player with the black leader is going, oh, this is working out just like I want to. <laughs> what a fun little game Hidden Leaders is. You have so many different ways to win, but then you have to look at it also. You have so many different ways to lose. Mm -hmm. It really does keep you on your toes whenever you're playing this game. Scott, next up on the list, I see you have one that Jimmy is all about. He's all about the first edition. I gather that you have the second edition of Summoner Wars. Let's hear about it. Well, Summoner Wars, it was released in 2021, the second edition, mm -hmm. and designed by Colby Douch and published by Plat Hat Games. I have the first edition, but I picked it up like on miniature market whenever they're having a clearance sale, getting rid of all their old stuff. Oh, you get it for dirt and cheap, I bet. Unfortunately, I never really had a chance to play it that much. I tried it out a couple times by myself and everything, but didn't really get a chance to really get into it. I kept on looking at it, and this is how for a year, and I put in a cart, take it out, put it in a cart, take it oh, out. Oh, I've done that dance. I finally pulled the trigger and I picked it up. So, Summoner Wars, for the best part of it, I could say is a mix of Memoir 44 and a card game. So, what you're going to have, you're going to have a board in front of you. It's a 6 by 8 board, so you have 48 spaces in front of you. Now, you have a choice of six different armies to play with. The Vanguards, Savannah Elves, Polar Dwarves, Cave Goblins, The Breakers, and the Fallen Kingdom. Each one of these play a little bit differently, but you have a general, you have higher-up units, and then you have your basic cannon fodder that go up. <laughs> the, On the, the guys that didn't volunteer. 
Right. <laughs> the ones that get the uh, spear in the back going, you want to join our army, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you have on the back of your leader, your general, you have a setup for where your cards are going to go. You have gates that will allow you to bring out new warriors, new units come out and fight. You put out your gate, your general, and two other units, and you begin playing. So during your turn, you're able to move a card two spaces. You can only move them orthogonally, up, left, right, or back. That's it. Now then you have ones that are melee uh, attackers, or you have ones that are ranged attackers. The ranged attackers can shoot anything within three blocks in front of them. Mm -hmm. Each unit has an amount of magic to summon them from the gates. So you're playing this game, you're putting things out. I played a game with the Polar Elves and the Savannah Elves. So as I'm playing them, the Savannah Elves are just getting things put out like crazy. I mean, I have half the board covered with Savannah Elves. I have like three units of the Polar Dwarves. It's pretty much done. But the thing with this game is everything is asymmetrical with each one of these armies that you can play with. So you go along, and as I'm playing, you roll dice equal to the number of the melee or the ranged amount. Mm -hmm. If you get those symbols on front of it, you take away that much health from the unit you're shooting, or you're banging over the head with a, a blunt object. Whenever you kill them, you get magic points. Yes. Those magic points allow you to summon more stuff as you go along. So as I'm playing, the Savannah Elves kept on just beating up on the dwarves, beating up. You on mean them. on the polar elves? Did the you say the polar, polar dwarves. Polar dwarves. They're okay. polar dwarves. Okay. Yes. So they're beating up on them, beating up on them. But then all of a sudden it hit me that, well, that deck is almost empty. Once that deck is empty, you can summon no more. You can't reshuffle your discard deck, oh. put them back in there and play it. Once everything's out, it's out. And it wasn't like I was really playing one side to beat the other side. It just kind of flowed that way, ended up coming out that way. Mm -hmm. And it ended up that the Polar Dwarves won. It doesn't take that long to play. It's very colorful. The artwork is fantastic. And as you go along, you can then buy expansions. They have different armies that come out. Oh, yeah. That's like the goal so of this So you're going to be able to build onto that. <laughs> and then also, there is an app you can play. You can get oh. a subscription for it, and you can play an app on it. The other thing that's really cool is you can reassign the decks and build your own armies. So all you have to do is make sure that each unit that you play in there matches one of the symbols on your general's deck. Mm -hmm. So once you get that, you can build all sorts of things. So basically, you're playing a game of Warhammer in 30 minutes with not all the painting you have to do, all the assembling you have to do, carrying all the boxes of all the stuff to put on the table. It's a great way of getting that feeling of playing that game without all the extra work with it. So, yeah, Summoner Wars, I'm glad I finally pulled the trigger on it. I think I'm going to get a lot of play out of this game. Well, now, the answer is probably yes, this is an upgrade over first edition. But any comments as to what you like about second edition as opposed to first? Well, I think the biggest thing really is making a little bit more streamlined. The dice are nicer with the symbols that you have to choose from. Mm -hmm. It's very straightforward. Whenever you play, everything's on the card, everything's on the dice. Boom, you're done. The cards are a little bit bigger, so they fit in just your standard size card sleeve. So that's a nice thing as well, too. The other ones were a little bit smaller, and it was tough to get the ones that would fit it just yeah. right. 
I think it's just a little, a little cosmetic changes that made to this game. I'm sure that there's some tweaking they did with some of the rules, but nothing really that major. Okay. It's very simple to pick up, very simple to play. And like I said, it's just a very tactical game of moving your little units around. It's, it's great. It's a fun time. Just about anyone could get into this game, I think. You said six armies in the base box? Uh, yes, there are six armies, and then there's another box that has two armies in it, and you can get that, and then I believe there are, probably by October, there's going to be four other expansions that come out oh, as wow. well. So they're going they're going hog wild with this thing. Oh, yes, They yes. did with and the first one, I too. Know I know the- Jimmy was collecting all the, well, I don't know if he was collecting, but he was trying to hunt down all the armies, and he's like, oh, these last ones are like $40, <laughs> like rare ones or oh, something. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the nice thing about it was with the first one, they would give you upgrade packs for the armies. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like you're just constantly getting this army, this army, this army, and then you run out of stuff and you don't play the old ones. Mm-hmm. You could have the vanguards in this and, oh, hey, by the way, here's a vanguard upgrade box. And has little things you can add into it and just change your army up a little bit then as well, too, to give a whole different flavor. So you might go heavy in melee or you may go heavy on ranged. It's a lot of options in this game to play. When I played the first edition, it reminded me a little bit of like Magic the Gathering with a spatial element. Because you have a lot of the classic magic. Like you can just call all the things that you're summoning. Those are the creatures. The uh, the energy that, that you need or, or whatever it's called in order to summon new creatures, that's mana. And you have Mm -hmm. spells, you have like lightning bolts, you have things that'll draw you more cards. It all felt like magic, but they introduced that where this card is on the board matters. And uh, for that reason, Summoner Wars actually grabbed me quite a bit. You know what helped me up with it though? Two-player. It's two-player game only, huh? Second edition's the same way? Actually, they had a way you could play four-player in the first edition, Mm -hmm. but it was just kind of like tacking things on there to get four players on it. And this one here, they just kind of said, nah, we're just going to play two and just focused on that. I feel like, and I think that's what's nice. I feel like it's a game that I'd go nuts with if, like, like if SCG had a weekly tournament and you could Mm -hmm. show up with your deck and fine tune it. And I don't want to say net deck, but like if, if you could find that thriving community online, they're like, oh, I'm going to switch these three cards for these three cards and tournament reports, like almost like a, a Magic the Gathering following. Man, if you had that for Summoner Wars, I would get so into this. It's that two player thing because, you know, when I have a game day, it's four or five, six. It's really hard to be like, all right, you two do whatever you want. Me and Scott, we're going to play Summoner Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the nice thing with this is I know a lot of times that they will sell the boards or even they have like a play mat that you can play that just folds up. So that's something easily. If you did have a game day, you could set up a little tournament there and have it and have three boards out. Each game takes 30, 40 minutes to play. Mm -hmm. So you could play a whole tournament right there without even spending that much money. Cool, cool. Excellent assessment of Summoner Wars Second Edition. I don't really know what to think about this. So I see you played it. I really want to know more of Green Team Wins. All right. Well, let me tell you some more about it. Scott, this comes from 25th Century Games in 2022, designed by Nathan Thornton. This is a bit of the hot stuff from Origins. I want to say 25th sold out by the end of the con, and I'm pretty sure that during one of the media events, remember when we were hanging out with Will Draken? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we were pouring liquor into a into plastic water bottles, trying oh, not God. to spill it. Yeah, I think Green Team Wins is what they were playing a couple tables over. All right. Yes, yes, yes. Scott, what was your group in high school? Like, we all fit it. Like, the nerds, the techies, the jocks. Like, 
Well, what if I had group? to anything, anything, I was I was a band geek. Ah, uh, so you're a band geek. That was the whole thing. I was in March band. Scott, what did so, you? Yeah. I didn't know this. What do you play? Uh trumpet. Can you still play a trumpet? I can still play a trumpet. I still pull it out every now and then and play it a little bit. And uh, so, yes, I can still play a trumpet. Our next meetup won't be until somewhere in October. I expect there to be an opening trumpet, like a ceremony to begin the game day. <laughs> Maybe we'll tape it and record it and then we'll play it that way there. That's not the same. That's not. The, that's like saying, yeah, uh, we're, we're going to go to a concert and you go to a concert and you get my point. Scott, this is a game yes. that's going to challenge players to be part of the cool kids. That's where I was going with that. So uh, the cliff notes on the game, best way to explain it is it's kind of like the opposite of just one. You know how in just one you want to think a tad outside of the box so all of the clues are right. slightly different? Like if the clue is pepperoni, maybe an easy clue would be pizza. But if multiple folks write down pizza, then it's removed entirely as a clue for the person who needs to guess pepperoni. Green team right. wins is kind of the opposite. The idea is to come up with the most common answer. So best way to explain this is to teach it. Let's play a game, Scott. Uh, uh, you, All right. you, me, and the adventurer listening to the episode. First clue gotcha. card is revealed, and it says arc. Now, Scott, you have to think something down. Uh, write it down on your dry erase board, and I'm going to write something down on mine. Adventure, you write something down on yours. You're thinking it in your head. Okay, now, Scott, what did you go with for Ark? I went with Noah. Noah. Okay, like the like Noah's Ark. Yes. I went with Nova, like the board game Ark Nova. Oh. Now, dear Adventure, did you say Nova? Great. So the majority answer was Nova for the clue. Wait, wait, arc. wait, wait, wait. How did I get sent to the secondary class here already? How do you know they didn't say because Nova? Because I'm narrating. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, we're going to yes. pretend like Adventure said Nova. So Arc Nova puts, uh, puts people who said Nova. They're going to be on the green team and they're going to score some points. Now, Adventure, right. if you wrote down something different, like Character Arc or Covenant, for example, then you're not in the majority. You don't gain any points, and you flip your team card to show that you're now on the orange team. All right, Scott, next round. <clears throat> I flip the card. It says, choose one, a naturally gray food or a naturally blue food? Naturally blue food. Okay. So what... <laughs> So what happens is if you're in the minority here, I, I said I said gray. So adventure, it's up to you to decide right. what were you in the minority or the majority. If you're in the minority, you flip your card to orange and you'll score no points. So if you were in green, not only do you get no points, you flip your card to orange. If you were orange, you're now in the majority, you score one point and you flip your card over to green. All right. If you were already green, you remain in the majority and you score two points. Oh, okay. okay. That's basically it. And you do that for 15 rounds and the high score is the winner. Game takes about 10 minutes to play. It can accommodate three to 12 players. The components, they're just cards, dry erase boards with some markers. All in all, Scott, this is a simple game that's going to get some laughter. I mean, you're going to be pointing fingers. You're going to be teasing each other with this one. Take our blue food, gray food example. What's the context? There is none. <laughs> I would take that to mean what sounds stranger, but somebody else might think of it like what's tastier. Somebody else might think right. of it as like, okay, what's going to make me throw up faster? Maybe even a better example. Uh, in one of our games, the, the card that we flipped, it was Michael blank. 
Okay. So we're all flipping up our cards. We had Michael Scott, Michael Jordan, Michael Buble, Michael Angelo, Michael Myers. So that ambiguity makes hey, it. Hey, hey, where's Michael Bolton? Where is Michael Bolton? <laughs> Michael Bolton? That's me. Wow. Is that your real name? Yeah. <clears throat> so are you related to that singer guy? No, it's just a coincidence. Oh. It is a fun little game. It doesn't take very long. I don't know that it's going to have like this phenomenal staying power. You're not going to play it seven times in a row, but like that, let's begin the night or let's end the night with this. It's a cool way to to try and like get some laughter from the table, wrap up the evening and maybe find out who's one of the cool kids. I had no idea going into it what exactly this meant at all. It does seem a little cool. I know I've had kind of like a ooh, a party game kind of thing here, but I think I've understood now that a lot of times that's what you need to get people involved into doing more board games. This sounds like a really good one here, and I'm going to have to check that one out for the next time I get together with the in-laws. Stop trying to make fetch a thing. All right. <laughs> mean Girls reference? Oh, I've never seen Mean Girls, so I don't know. Oh. You have homework. There we go here. My Gen Can't homework is I need to watch Mean Girls. Understood. One of the most popular games in the hobby and the oldest in the BGG Top 100 is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh, yeah. Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family-owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively mm-hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5. L-E-V-E-L, the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. Scott, I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to partner up with Brown Castle Games, but Adventures, I wanted to point something out, and I wanted to emphasize this. When you hear a commercial on our show, be it for Brown Castle Games, for Mondo, for Tabletop Tycoon, for the discounts, we want you to know that we truly don't get anything. For, actually, I think Mondo said we'll get three cents every time something goes through. <laughs> we haven't seen anything yet uh, from it. But the point is, whenever we do these partnerships, we do want to make it clear to adventurers that we're not getting a, a kickback of some sort. In fact, in most cases, we're not even getting a game. It's just because we believe in these companies. We believe in the games that we're promoting. And for something like Brown Castle Games, they're, they're our friends. We want to help them out. And finally, it's a thank you to you for listening to this show. You know, yes. the idea here is that Scott and I, we're doing this, we're doing this for the love of gaming. Yeah, this is a wonderful thing because yeah, we we don't get anything, but it's just great when we go someplace and you might not recognize our voice. We might sit down and play a game. We might end up having a new friend whenever we're done with mm-hmm. this. That's all we're looking forward to is building community. 
Scott, I think we have time for one more recent adventure, and you have got the appropriately named The Adventurer for your most recent adventure. Tell us about it. This is after I just talked about building community, a solo RPG. So (laughs) for those that don't like to have friends, this one's for you. No, I, I kid about that. Every year there's a thing with, oh, God, what is it? The great novel writing thing in November they have. Okay. And every year I always think, I'm going to try that out. I'm going to try it out. Uh, you know what? Next year I'll prepare for it and I'll try it out. Mm-hmm. The adventurer is something that you can do with this. This is a great thing if you're just sitting around, sitting outside, listening to the rain, drinking your coffee, and you want to play something that's not really deep but still kind of gets your mind going. The Adventure is a solo role-playing game, and it's called a solo role-playing game about writing journal entries. Okay. So what you do is you have, you get a deck of cards. You separate the cards out into each one of the suits. Mm -hmm. And as you go along, you will draw a card from each one of them. So what will happen is you flip over in spades. This will be locations that you will go to. Hearts will be events that will happen while you're traveling. Diamonds things that you can find there, and clubs, beings that you will encounter. So each one of these has a table that you can play with. So you flip over your spades to see where you're at. Well, we're at a castle. Then you flip it over and, well, it's a castle that saw death. So there might be a ghost involved with this. You don't know. All right. And in your journal writing, you can write up however you want that you were walking along. You came upon this castle and there's talk of ghosts being at this castle. And you flip it over that you run into an unknown presence whenever you flip over the club card. So what is that unknown presence? You can make up whatever you want to. All right. And then diamonds, these are the things that you're looking for. So maybe you've heard from somebody that there's a small box containing a weapon somewhere in this castle. And what you're doing is just writing down a little adventure as to what you do. And it's not really rolling things as far as I'm going to win this or I need to roll a four or five to beat this goblin. It's just you writing out what you think would happen. Okay. So it's twofold. One, you get your imagination starting turning if you're a writer. It's a great little thing to do with that. Sounds like it. If you're a GM, it's a great way to start out an adventure. You get done with this. Hey, I got an adventure for my crew next time. If you are just someone that just want to get things out of your head and kind of clear your head, you could write this out. It may end up being something that is troubling you at work, like someone that you don't like, and this gives you a chance to get out the feelings or whatever. So it could be all sorts of different things that you do with this game to play it. Um, Diane complained again about my coffee mug perched on exactly. top the edge of my desk. That unseen presence. She was named <laughs> Diane. She was killed once by a stapler. Oh. <laughs> it's not a game changer of a game. There's The mechanics of it are very simple. Well, let me ask you this. But, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. It doesn't no, sound like please. it's a game, so to speak. It sounds more like a like a writing tool, a, a means of like uh, being able to challenge yourself to make a story. It is, but I think if you look at a little bit on a bigger picture, Mm -hmm. this could be something that leads into games. Like I said, this could be something where you're a game designer and you're trying to come up with the theme of a game that you want to build. Okay. Backstory for your RPG character. Or whatever. So there's something there you can use. So yeah, it's not exactly a game per se. I think it's more of a tool that you can use. 
for that matter, a tool that can be had for all of five bucks. I looked on BGG yes. whenever I saw this and I was like, oh, there is no thing. You know, there's no the adventure or solo RPG. But if you Google that, you can find the PDF. It's downloadable for a whopping five dollars. I mean, come on. Yeah. I just happened one night. I was just looking through trying to find solo RPGs. Figuring, what the heck? Let's see what's out there and stumbled across this. And I'm sitting here for 10 minutes in front of my computer, flipping over the four cards. And already I'm like halfway through this town, going through trying to find this relic. And it's like, wow, this just builds such a, a world in your head. And this could be a great tool for a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Is the setting always like you said, oh, it's a relic, a castle. Is the setting always sort of like that, that old timey thing? Or is it kind of just what you make? Like you flip a card and it says, what are you looking for? Can you be like, well, I'm looking for... I don't know, refills for my paintball gun in Albuquerque. And just Well, the great thing it. with that is you have a blank card table. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do a science fiction type of game, fill in all the cards as to different things with science fiction. Oh. If you want to do a superhero thing, put in superhero different things that could happen. You can adapt this to whatever type of theme that you want it to be. That sounds excellent. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's probably not really a game per se, mm -hmm. but it's kind of game adjacent. Okay, okay. So that is The Adventurer, a solo RPG about writing journal entries from James Chip. What, James is here? No, <laughs> that's, that's our beloved trumpeter for the top 100. Oh, 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 oh geez, I got all nervous there for a second. Scott, all right, yes. Not a lot to talk about today. Prime Movers, the crew, Mission Deep Sea is up two spots to number 52. New highest peaks, these games are higher than they've ever been. The aforementioned crew, Mission Deep Sea at 52. Cascadia is up to 64. Kanban EV is up to number 83. And we've got one birthday, happy birthday, for six years. To scythe. Woohoo! Well, Scott, we were scrambling to come up with what our review today was going to be. I was looking on BGA and I saw that Barrage became available and I said, Brother, we keep talking about this thing moving up to top 100. We have got to do Barrage. You ready? Yeah, let's do this. by Tommaso Battista and Simone Luciani, published in 2019 by Cranio Creations. Barrage is a resource management strategic game in which players compete to build their majestic dams, raise them to increase their storing capacity, and deliver all the potential power through pressure tunnels connected to the energy turbines of their powerhouses. This energy production helps fulfill contracts, which leads to points. And at the end of five rounds, the player with the most points is the winner. Now, Barrage is a complex game, and we try to keep our walkthroughs short, so many in-game details of play are going to be kind of glossed over in an effort to give you a mental picture of what's happening in the game. Let's start with the board and setup. The game board features four head streams at the top, from which water will flow downstream. This is represented by wooden water droplet tokens. From the head stream, the board has three sections, the mountains at the top, the hills in the middle, and the plains at the bottom of the board. Throughout the game, players will build powerhouses that can turn this water flow into energy, conduits, which are required to push water to your powerhouses, dams to stop the water and make it accessible for your powerhouses, and elevations, which basically allow your dams to hold more water. Now each player is going to get an asymmetric player board on which they have these four structure types. The board outlines the cost to build each structure, and once built, many structures unlock a bonus or upgrade moving forward. Now at its core, Barrage is a worker placement game. 
Each player has 12 workers, or in this case engineers, that they'll be placing during the round. There are several action spaces to place them, but I'll highlight just a few to give you a sense of the game cycle. Obviously, you can place workers for building your structures. You have spaces that'll allow for more water flow, essentially adding water tokens to the head streams at the top of the board. There's a location for gaining new contracts, basically in-game targets that you'll fulfill when you create energy, collecting the bonus awards plus points listed on it. And you have a worker placement space for producing. This is the way to fulfill your contracts, and it works like this. Pick one of your powerhouses that's connected to a body of water. Does that body of water have one of your dams, or a neutral dam that was placed there at the start of play? Good. Does it also have a conduit? Yours or someone else's? Good. You can now move those water droplets to your powerhouse, produce the indicated amount of energy, fulfill any contracts whose requirements you've met, then move those water tokens downstream until they hit another dam, or flow off the bottom of the board. I should note as well that even if you don't fulfill a contract, producing energy is still vital as end-of-round scoring occurs based on who created the most energy. Now let's go back to our personal player board because Barrage has an extra layer of resource management that needs to be highlighted, and that is your resource wheel. This is a cardboard circle off to the right of your player board. Think of it like a big Trivial Pursuit pie, six triangles in a circle. When you build a structure, it's going to have a requirement of either excavators or cement mixers, basically secondary workers that you need for building, represented by brown or gray kind of meeples. Say you build a powerhouse. You'll take some cement mixers and you'll place them on that wheel, and then you'll rotate it once. The trick is, you don't get those cement mixer pieces back until they've rotated entirely around the wheel. As you can imagine, there are worker placement spaces to acquire more of these resources or spin your wheel as well as contracts and unlockable powers on your board, they're going to help crank that wheel even more. At the end of a round of play, the player who's produced the most energy will score points, followed by second place in energy production. Each player gets all of their workers back, income is collected, and new water droplets are placed at the head streams at the top of the board. After five rounds of play, the high score wins the game. Now make no mistake, this is a very watered-down description, no pun intended, of how to play Barrage there are a myriad of interconnecting triggers and benefits that allow for players to pursue a number of different strategies, be it focusing on cheap, early energy to fulfill several small contracts, building elevations onto your dam to hold out for one massive contract, shooting for contracts that offer free structures, or perhaps unlocking spaces on your player board attempting to outproduce your opponents in the income step. Point is, this is a complex game with a number of strategies and with little room for error. So that's the quick and dirty of how Barrage is going to play out when it hits your table. How did we feel about it while it was on ours? Let's do this the level up way. It's time for the 8-bit breakdown of Barrage. Construction of dams like this downstream from the mountaintop is being assisted through the use of power from Lake Rowallan. Completion of each storage dam means that progressively further generating stations are phased into the system, which already supplies power for 98% of homes and industry in Tasmania. Eventually, the scheme will have seven power stations, each in turn using the same water from the combined river flow at different levels. Thank you, Patrick, for the walkthrough of our game today, Barrage. Oh, you're welcome. Now, it's time for us to break it down into our eight bits. We like to do this with all our review games so we can go through all the different bits and pieces of the game and really give you a good idea as to what you're going to be taking a step into. So, you ready to start this, Patrick? Let's do this. 
Bit number one is the art and components. What did you think, sir? Scott, this one's a little bit tricky for us because we played it on BGA where everything looked great. But, you know, quite frankly, components, it's hard to give a a good assessment of. So I had to do a little bit of Mm -hmm. research. What I was able to find was that there are some stories of the components not being especially great. Uh, I love the various uh, shapes and the player-specific wooden pieces, but apparently there have been folks that have received damage pieces. There's some negative comments about the quality of the resource wheel, especially in the Kickstarter version of the game. But anything I was able to find says that the retail version was just fine. Now, art in the game, it's pretty minimal, but I think the art's fantastic. And frankly, the graphic design is easy to understand. For what is, frankly, a complex game, the graphic design helps as opposed to hinders. Yes, very much so. And like you said, playing on BGA, we are at a bit of a disadvantage. But I did watch a video on how to play, and... I tell you what, there's a lot of stuff in this box. Mm -hmm. You got the wooden components for your dams, your power stations, your turbines, your engineers, backhoes, your cement mixers, water droplets that some of them, like you said, in the Kickstarter are like little gems. Mm -hmm. And there's boards for everything. You have your main board. Then you have board for actions. Then you have your board for each one of the players. So there's all this stuff. So I think once people play it on BGA, I think it would thrive on BGA and be very, very popular because you don't have to deal with a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But still looking at it, the art, I love the artwork of the people that are in charge on the player boards really nice detail artwork on it but then everything else is pretty minimal it's going back to the golden days of euro games really it's very simple very plain but still once you get into learning how to play it it all makes sense Bit number two, we look at the game's theme and our immersion therein. From Board Game Geek, in the dystopic 1930s, the Industrial Revolution pushed the exploitation of fossil-based resources to the limit. And now, the only thing powerful enough to quench the thirst for power of the massive machines and the unstoppable engineering progress is the unlimited hydroelectric energy provided by the rivers. Scott, I think Barrage does a bit for the theme in that the water flows from the top of the board to the bottom. Now, obviously on BGA, it moves automatically, but even on the Mm -hmm. table, just being able to visualize rivers and moving those pieces along, I think that does a bit for the theme. Along the way, as water gets held up at various dams and sucked into powerhouses via conduits, it does, in fact, well, for me anyway, it gives a visual sense of immersion into that theme. Worker placement spaces, they're all appropriately named, and there's a definite sense of progression in your power as the game progresses. And really, the struggle for outperforming your competition is implemented through the game's potentially ruthless moves. You feel like you're competing tycoons because you can do some nasty things to each other. Most definitely. I mean, this is an odd one for me because... I never really felt at any point in time that I was a country running a hydroelectric power plant. Mm -hmm. Do I feel like I'm running it? Yes. The theming of the country's doing more doesn't really fit for me. I'd be fine with the player board saying that I'm Bob. The immersion, yes. I was always looking for where to place my turbine to get the most out of the water that would be coming soon. Mm -hmm. Where to place my power plants to gain the most electricity. There's a lot of things to keep in mind here. So I was immersed in the whole idea of the hydroelectricity and getting the power and everything that we need. 
but I wasn't really drawn in by the theme of the different countries or anything. Not that that's a bad thing. I mean, I'm not saying that. But there's a lot to keep in mind that really immerses you into this game. And you know what? That might be a key there. There's a lot to keep in mind. This this is a complex game. I mean, it's complex enough that your brain is going to be spending a lot of its power trying to think up the next play instead of like mm. envisioning yourself atop a levy. That's okay. This is a complex euro, and that typically is a style of game that has, you know, people say, well, it's got a pasted on theme, you know, like who cares what the theme is. But in Barrage, I I actually felt it was pretty, pretty well implemented. Can I just say, (laughs) it feels like this is a similar world to Scythe, and I kind of envision that we're generating all this energy and fulfilling all of these contracts for the factions in Scythe that are like warring with each other. I could definitely see the connection there. Definitely. (laughs) Scott, let's move on to bit number three. Let's talk complexity. What do you think? Complexity of Barrage. This is complex, and yet it's not. You have to get water from your dams to your turbines and then to your power plants. A to B to C. Easy. But the paths that are available to you and efficiently using your engineers is much tougher than you might think. Mm -hmm. The economics of using resources and timing the rondelle on this board is a lot to take in. Yes, It's definitely not an introductory game by any means. Do you think this is something that that your average gamer is going to be able to grasp within one play? I think they'll be able to grasp it within one play. What about a heavy gamer? Being able to understand it firmly and be able to play it competently and and get enjoyment out of it, no. Okay. How about a heavy gamer? A heavy gamer, I think they will get more enjoyment out of it. It will really get their, like, I want to play this again right now. I want to play this right again right now. Mm -hmm. This will definitely get a heavy gamer going, and that's smell the musk in the air of barrage is going to just drive them crazy what about casual gamers casual gamers that's going to be a tough one i would say this would definitely be one that you would have to set up hey on this day here we're going to be playing barrage get ready for it take a look look at it watch a couple videos yeah get ready for it and we'll explain everything whenever you get here it's going to be a make or break baptism by fire are they are they looking to take the next step casual gamers it's one that you have to set up and let them know it's not one that you're going to have them come in and just surprise them and hey we're going to play barrage (laughs) i'm going to try it scott at its core this it's a worker placement game yes but beyond the worker placement uh, there is an area control element where you need to be extremely thoughtful and where you put your structures. And even then, even then you have another layer of thought in determining which contracts you're going to attempt to fulfill, which benefits they provide and how those benefits are going to improve your current position. I think the thing that makes barrage complex is that it is not forgiving. No, it is not in the least. Never mind that other players are going to do things that foil your plans. The bottom line, it takes a lot of effort to you yourself put those plans together. And if you do something wrong, you're going to pay for it. The game's not going to hold your hand at all. Like like there's games out there where you'll, you'll be at a crossroads where you have seven different options. You just kind of pick the one that seems fun or like what your character would do. In Barrage, when you have seven options, you have to pick one of the right ones or there are consequences. And if the game doesn't Mm -hmm. punish you for it, even then the other players might. Maybe the point is with complexity, there's interconnectivity of mechanisms here. And for the amount of them, the worker placement in this game 
makes it much more complex than most. I think it is a great way of looking at it and putting it there as well. Our next bit is the rule book and the learning curve. Mm-hmm. Now, I know for me, the rule book, we had Ryan. So that was a big We had the for best me. rule book you can get. <laughs> yeah, living, <laughs> breathing Ryan. I mean, what more rule book do you need? But you said you had a chance to look at the rule book. What did you think of it? Yeah, I was I was browsing the rule book because I had to put together the walkthrough. The rule book's going to start with flavor and then a big old component listing. Before getting into the mechanisms, it provides you with that aim of the game and important concepts to remember. And I always like one of more complex games when they give you that sort of prologue of concepts to understand because then it's easier to map out all of the rules in your head as you play. Mm-hmm. You've got ample appendices at the end of the book that outline the exact meaning of each symbol that you might run into, and it actually makes for a pretty quick reference during play. It's chock full of examples, and all in all, uh, I was able to use that rulebook and teach Jason the following day. Oh, wow. That's that's a, a good thing there. I mean, jumping into game, playing it from Ryan teaching us, and then read it and teach it again, that's, that's a great thing. Now, the learning curve, what'd you think of that? Oh, it took me an entire game. To fully comprehend the interconnectivity of the mechanisms. And fortunately, my first instinct when I finished was, let's go again. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, Ryan taught us one night and literally the first thing the next morning, you and I were playing it again. Yes. Yes, we were. I think I played it four times the next day. Jeez. Yeah. No. And you know what? You know what's cool is after now playing, geez, probably eight, eight or nine times now, I'm still learning things like i understand the game i understand how everything operates after a play or two and then the third and fourth i go oh yeah and then after the fifth and the sixth that's when it's like what if i try this what happens if i try that the learning curve to understand the game it's going to take a full play but fortunately, the game still has enough wrinkles that even after your eighth and even after my ninth play, I'm still going, ooh, this is interesting. Like there's a lot of discovery going on. What did you think with the learning curve? Other than a few couple questions here and there, it's relatively easy to pick up. You need to start with the water at the top of the, of the board, mm-hmm. run it down, stop it with your dam, run it through a turbine, get it to your power plant. It's that simple. But it's all the little things of planning and making sure that you have the turbines in the right place and your power plants, especially in the right place. And like you said, it's not difficult to pick up, but it's those little folds that you find in the uh, the playing of it that like, oh, wait, let me flatten that. Oh, there's a different way I could play. Learning it is not that difficult. Mastering it is difficult. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of situations where you go, oh, crap, or somebody takes advantage of you, or you miscalculated your resources. It's it's a bit of a game about navigating restrictions because you're not going to be able to do yeah. everything that you want to do. So you have to find the best way to do what you can and hopefully do so in a way that other people can't take advantage of you. Very, very true. Bit number five, where is the meat? Every game's got that portion of it that gets your brain thinking that when you're thinking about the game, when it's not on the table, there's that one thing that makes you want to get it back to the table. Where's the meat of barrage? To me, the whole game is a meat. Now, just go with me on this. You have your engineers. They get the jobs done. Mm -hmm. But wait, you have the cement mixers and the backhoes. They get the job done. Yeah, excavators Uh, and uh, cement mixers, yeah. 
Oh yeah, there's the rondelle to make sure you have workers and the cement mixers and the excavators to uh, make sure they have time off and be in between jobs to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Oh, but then you have the dams, turbines, and power plants to get the job done. Each one of these things are so elegantly intertwined with each other that it's difficult to say, in my eyes, what the meat of the game is. Each one is vitally important to the next one yes. that I find it difficult to say what is meatier. Mm -hmm. But if I had to choose one thing as being meatier than the rest, that is the running of the water. Okay. When you loose the water at the top of the boards, this is your chance to see what your work has produced. Did you factor in more water going through than expected? Did you factor in your opponent diverting the water in another direction? Watching the water release from the reservoir at the top of the board is both thrilling and terrifying. <laughs> yes. You're either going to celebrate your planning or weep at your mistakes. Scott, I think the bulk of the gameplay here and, and most of the difficult decisions come down to building your structures in Advent. Okay, let me restart that. You're right. The game is a meatloaf. There's... <laughs> crucial decisions <laughs> in multiple places. So we can't say, oh yeah, right there. That's where like, yes, contracts matter, but contracts only matter if you're able to produce energy and producing energy only right. matters if you're placing your structures in the right place. And that only matters depending on where the water is. So I 100% agree with you, but I will say, I think that the, the most difficult decisions come down to building your structures in advantageous areas of the board. And it's kind of like a deconstructive process where you have to suss out an optimal move or two and then back backtrack each step. Like, okay, I want a powerhouse here. Do I have three bucks? Yes. Do I have two workers? Yes. Do I have three cement mixers? Yes. Okay. So I can make this play. Now I have to determine what my opponent might do in response. And quite frankly, that is a lot to consider for making a single play. We should also point out that every worker placement game has the interplay of taking a spot before someone else. But mm -hmm. wow, it is Brutal. Capital B brutal here. After the first worker placement spot or two is taken from an area, the remaining spots cost more in terms of workers and or cash to use them. And sometimes they give you a smaller benefit. And you couple that with the fact that someone can build a dam upstream and cut off your water supply. This has potential mm -hmm. to be cutthroat. And even when it's not you still have really tight gameplay. Like if everybody's like, okay, look, we're not going to cut the water off for each other. Suppose you're playing a friendly game. You're, you're trying to make it co-op. There's still very Wait, little there's room. There's a friendly version of this oh, game? Oh, no. There, I guarantee there is no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the diplomacy of Euros. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh. Even if you're trying not to get in each other's way, there's still an extremely tight gameplay that offers very little room for error. No, I do think gamers tend to not like when a Euro game uh, is, is it's lacking interactivity, right? You sit there and you do your own thing while everybody else is doing their own thing. That's not Barrage. Barrage is extremely interactive. But let me say this. It can be nasty. And the, intera <laughs> the interaction is in the form of it's cutting each other off, taking advantage of them, taking spots before them. It forces you to pay close attention to what everyone else is doing. It makes every decision tense. And frankly, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so tough whenever you think, I'm just going to go out and get the small things right away, those power plants, and just let the water come to me. You decide that thinking, all right, I'll have that going. And then you realize by turn two, all the water is going to the other side of the board, completely away from what you had. Yeah, been. somebody powerhouse and rerouted it to another river, which, quite frankly, that makes thematic sense. 
Ding. Yes, yes, it does. I tell you what, Ryan got me the metal coins for Merchants of the Dark Road. He just, what's your what's your address? And he ran, he was listening to that episode where I was like, yeah, I want to get those metal coins. Don't let me leave Origins without them. I left Origins without them and Ryan sent them to me. And man, in my book, his stock shot way up. Over the last <laughs> week, every time he has built a dam that cut off my water supply, his stock has gone down little <laughs> by little by a little, and I'm telling you, that is his mo in barrage. And right now, we're back to even. We're we're square. I don't owe him anything for the coins anymore, <laughs> on account of the damn dams. <laughs> Scott bit number six: the replayability and variability of barrage. Here we've got a few setup variables with the neutral dams and the player powers, but beyond that, it's a relatively static board and the same worker placement spots each game. Scoring tiles per round are going to change game to game. And while that might shape your tactical decisions in play, it's probably not enough to change your overall grand strategy. There is an endgame scoring tile, which can give you about 10 to 20% of your overall score. So everyone's going to be mindful of it. Where the game amps up the variability is with the standard and advanced variants in which you get to pick a fifth construction tile. When we were uh, doing our first couple of games, we had that question mark tile where it's like, well, this can be anything right. you want. In one of the versions, you get to pick an assistant, which grants you a set fifth tile. And you also have the option to place a worker at a spot where there's a market of tiles. So you might have one that says, uh, this builds an elevation and you don't have to use any concrete mixers and you get $3 for using it. Right. Now that that can change your, your play, honestly. Personally, I think given the complexity of this game, though, and the shifting tactics that I need to make based on the other players, that's enough right there to keep me coming back to it. It's nice to know, though, that they do have that advanced variant for when you're ready to amp it up a little, huh? Yeah, yeah. In my mind, this is new, so the replayability is there. People want to play this That's game. a factor. There are a lot of decisions to make, and the asymmetry of the countries adds a lot to the options. Mm -hmm. But this is one that I will say has... There's a limited amount of variability you can have in this. The variability comes completely from your decisions, yes. what you play at different times. You have four different countries that are playing, so once you have mastered those, and it comes down to what your opponents will do. Can they come out with expansions? Sure. No, they have. Uh, but they have the, the Lee Water uh, Project and the fifth player expansion. I did not realize yeah, that. I did some I looking did not into do it. my homework. Hey, that's, that's what happens when you go camping for the weekend. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I think there's so many things you could do with just putting another board out there. Give extra countries, little things like that you can put out there. Little things that could change this game huge. Mm -hmm. This is one of those games where it doesn't need a huge expansion to give it a new play experience. It's just tiny little tweaks that can change everything in this game. Scott, bit number seven is where we look at downsides. Every game has them. What are some downsides for Barrage? Well, you touched on this briefly, but once you realize that you've made a mistake, there's little you can do to recover from this game. Once you get into the second turn, maybe the third turn, then it's just like, I'm going to be playing my best to take second or third or fourth place mm -hmm. because it is very, very brutal. It's not like a heavy war game or anything. It's just that the decisions you make Tiny little decisions can have a huge, huge impact mm -hmm. on your game. If you're all right with playing the game out and enjoying the whole experience, this is for you. If not, it's going to be one long downside of the game for you. 
what did you think about the game? Well, as far as downsides, given the complexity, you're going to want to play this repeatedly with other players that understand the game. I think if I oh, yes. bought this and I played it once every few months, then the potential enjoyment might be wasted in spending the game time trying to remember rules or teaching someone who's new to it. So whether or not that's a downside for you, Adventure, well, that's going to depend on your gaming group. But Barrage definitely wants repeated plays from invested players. Now, we mentioned at the beginning that there's a consistent complaint on BGG with component quality in the Kickstarter version. But again, uh, we kind of we kind of failed you on that one today because we did our review the plays on BGA. Scott, uh, you mentioned it already. And frankly, we both learned the hard way at one time or another that Barrage is unforgiving. Uh, it can yes. be mean if you if you slip up early. And one last thing, I think that there has to be like an opening salvo of plays in round one that all but has to consist of a powerhouse connected to a neutral dam or to one of your own coupled with a conduit to produce energy and fulfill a contract. Boom. Get that done round one. And then after that, everything opens up. Now, we've had some plays where things went differently. Yes, but I feel like anytime I do well in the game, that's typically my opening. Not necessarily a downside, but uh, but it is a thing. Uh, lastly, just to touch again on the unforgivingness of the game, there isn't a catch-up mechanic. No. no. If you lose, you probably deserve it. And if you win, you probably earned it. You're not going to be able to just mm -hmm. catch up because the game arbitrarily dishes you extra goods because you're not doing well. If you don't like a game where somebody who makes early missteps and is out remains out, well, this probably isn't for you. Very, very true. Now, for our final bit here. Bringing it on fun? home. And who is it for? So, I think I know where you're going. I think people might be wondering. They aren't sure where I'm going yet. But was it fun? Yes. Hey. It was a fun game. <laughs> See, Adventures, what you don't know is I don't know. When if Scott's going to say yes or no, if he liked the game until we do this in the 8-bit breakdown. So it's news to me. I'm just as excited. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> yeah, it was a fun game. The feeling you get when you have the aha moment gets that serotonin flowing, baby. But other than that, I feel that this one has a very distinct niche. This is for those days that you're in the mood for a heavy thinker. It's not going to be in the game bag all the mm -hmm. time. But it will be a game that is a planned event. Yes. You want to refresh the rules in, and whatnot before you play the game again. Now, who's it for? This is for someone who enjoys the old-time Euros. Wooden pieces, deep decision-making, dry subject matter. Okay, dry probably is not yeah, a great wet word for this game. But, <laughs> I see what but you did this there. Would be, <laughs> this would be for someone who loves power grid and wants to jump to the next rung of the game ladder. You can introduce it to newer players, sure. But as I said, with the importance of not making mistakes, you may have alienated a newer player by pulling this game out. Mm -hmm. That's the tricky thing. What did you think? Now, I, I'm i going to say uh, you thought it was yes, fun. Yes, I did. Barrage is 100% fun for me. Scott, this forces me to think ahead multiple turns, implement a strategy, and watch it unfold. I like the challenge of doing so because it takes forward planning. It's a game that rewards thoughtful play. And if I win, I feel like I accomplish something. If I lose, I feel good for the winner because they clearly put a lot of effort into their play and they did a lot of forward planning. Last episode, we did our top five of the most recent 10 reviews, as we always do. So this is the first game of the new batch of 10. And I got to tell you, it's going to be really hard 
really hard for any of the next nine to surpass Barrage. Heck, at the end of the year, when we do our top 10 games that we've done the whole year, Mm -hmm. it's going to be hard for anything to pass Barrage. Wow. I want to start a family with this game. (laughs) That, that That was a lot of information. I want to make Barrage's babies. All right, folks. Good night. <laughs> no, <nothing. laughs> now, who is Barrage for? Uh, I mentioned as a potential downside for this game that it wants to be on your table regularly with a consistent group. If you play a variety every game day and then you rotate games for the next, Barrage might not be a smash hit for you. You want to play this with people who know how to play in order to tap into that next level. So obviously, it's probably not for casual gamers. Finally, I think that if you have someone in your group who can't stand it when their plans are foiled by someone else, kind of like the take that mechanism. We've all seen reviews like, well, it does have a lot of take that. Barrage does that indirectly. It's subtle in its execution, but the ramifications thereof are not subtle. Coming someone's water off with a dam of your own is way Mm -hmm. meaner than when you attack someone in risk. This is a game for a group that loves to think hard when they play. The need to think ahead, you know what? It reminded me of Brass. While the need to manage your resources, not only for this turn, but for the next two or three, you know what? That gave me a little uh, shades of Dune Imperium. A little vibe of Dune Imperium because you have to think, okay, I'm getting these. What am I going to do with them? That sounds like your jam. I think you're going to love Barrage. In battle, there are no equals. Unmatched is a highly asymmetrical miniature fighting game for two to four players. Each hero is represented by a unique deck designed to evoke their style and legend. Tactical movement and no luck combat resolution create a unique play experience that rewards expertise. But just when you've mastered one set, new heroes arrive to provide all new matchups. Oh, yes. Yes, so one year ago today, we had a chance to review Unmatched. Now it's time for us to take a look back and see what do we still think about it? Does it come to the table? And what do we think of the future of Unmatched? So, Patrick, what do you think? Well, I liked Unmatched. I didn't especially love it. Uh, It's easy to pick up and play. The variety of characters is going to make it replayable. But for me, I said at the time, and I still kind of feel like it's lacking a tiny bit of depth. I can see where it's got its audience, but it's just a little bit simple for my tastes. I think it might be best as a one-on-one game too. And that's going to make it a little bit tougher for me to get it out on game day when there's four or five people at the house. Three-player unmatched tends to turn into Mm -hmm. two-on-ones. And four-player often turns into like two one-on-ones, just players duking it out and the two survivors feud. uh, They feud on each other when (laughs) when it's done. Uh, We should point out that we had an early peek at the Deadpool character box when we reviewed this. They sent us a copy. And I got to say, it wasn't just funny, but the cards were thematic to the character. Not just their names, but their abilities. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, unmatched. I always want to get it back to the table, but for some reason, it never does. It's a fun game. The characters are truly unique. As far as strategy concerned, this is placed full on the cards you have in hand. Mm-hmm. Location of your mini is secondary to this, as if you do not have the cards to play, your only choice is to run away. I would love the characters that they're releasing. Yes, the Jeff Goldblum sexy pose is kind of funny. Yeah, I dig it. I like the public domain characters more when they use King Arthur and Sinbad and Alice and uh, the Invisible Man, different things like that. Why is that? 
And I think it's just one of those things where it was getting characters that were a little bit more interesting than what everyone else knows. Okay. It's a little more mysterious with these older characters. Plus, and also, whenever I do that, I'm more interested in looking back and seeing, well, maybe I ought to read The Invisible Man. Maybe I ought to read this. And it kind of opens up new avenues for you to explore things outside of the hobby playing games. Okay. Um, with that, I mean, there are just so many interesting characters that could be used other than going with Marvel, which it seems everyone's going with. Mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, which granted is kind of fun thinking Alice in Wonderland versus the Velociraptors. That's kind of a hoot. But I don't want the excitement of the game to get lost in the characters that you can play. I do recommend this game wholeheartedly, but for me, it seems to have lost a little something I can't rightly put my finger on, to be exact. Maybe it's just because you haven't been able to get it back to the table. I know you have it be. with you every time at SCG. You just can't seem to can't seem to twist enough uh, twist enough arms to get it get that people to very join well you. Could be so. Uh, I know that they have Beowulf versus Red Riding Hood at Target on sale. I believe it is. So I might have mm-hmm. to pick that up and kind of like give it that little shot of adrenaline to get things going again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I gotta say, it's it's not a game that I'm in love with personally, but it does have an audience. It's accessible, it plays relatively quick, and it's got broad appeal with that lineup of characters. Oh, yes. I don't think it's going to be appealing to someone who loves a lengthy Euro, for example, but I think that a game that you can introduce to more casual gamers, or even seasoned gamers that just want a nice light battle game with some variability, some tactical plays, some goofy matchups, I think for that crowd, Unmatch is a pretty easy recommend recommendation i think most gamers are going to get something out of it and have a good time with it yeah it's uh very similar to the funko universe games that they had with the funko pops and having oh it's like the same thing yeah the golden girls versus harry potter but this one here i think they went a bit darker with the theme like Mm. alice in wonderland alice has a huge sword on her back that she fights with I, i i don't remember that from the disney movie but then again i could have been asleep during that time i don't know if you want to have some laughs, you want to have a drink, you're out with a friend at a coffee shop that, or a game cafe, you want to play a little game, it's very simple to set up, play, and have a good laugh. Kind of like so, a beer yeah. and pretzels game with some meat on the bones. That's a great way of putting it. Excellent. Introducing Magic the Gathering's best worst kept secret. The Secret Lair Drop Series contains specifically curated cards that feature some of the most exciting artists around. But act fast, as each drop is available for a limited time only. Now, from Magic the Gathering, exclusive pre-order, Secret Lair. Judge Judy Edition. This drop features 10 cards that will rock your collection and put the guilty verdict on those who challenge you. Do you understand how annoying you are? Cards exclusive to this lair include Bailiff Petrie Hawkins. Voice of the show, Jerry Bishop. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheinland. New legendary artifact card, Gavel of the 90s. Get these cards into your deck now and make sure the defense never rests. Plus, get the exclusive hollow foil legendary creature card, the Honorable Judge Judith Scheinland. He didn't purchase a car. This secret lair has some of the most collectible and most powerful cards that Magic the Gathering has ever printed. Outrageous. And those are no small claims. The court is in session. This case is over. Step out. Release date to be determined. 
Well, Adventures episode 68 keeps chugging along. Scott, we still have a visit from Josh. Plus, we've got an adventure on the horizon. What do you want to start with? I, I haven't talked to him in a while. Let's see what Josh has to say. Adventurers, welcome, welcome. I feel like it's been a while. For those of you who may have forgotten who I am, I am Explorer Josh. And for those of you who are new, I am Explorer Josh. I travel the land of the board game world looking for hidden treasures, crooks and cranny games, maybe fall behind the shelf behind the bigger games, or as we lovingly call it on this podcast, Lost Loot. Today, I am very excited to share with you a wonderful little roll and write. This comes in at a rank at 5,330 and takes place in the set A Watch universe. This game... Merchants of Magic, designed by Clarence Simpson and published by Rock Manor Games. For those of you who don't know, Set a Watch is a cooperative game that involves players around a campfire being basically Dungeons and Dragons adventurers or heroes trying to find a way to make sure that they don't get attacked in the night. This is in the same universe, but instead of being adventurers, you're actually merchants who are running a magic shop. The whole point of the game is you are crafting items and researching spells to sell to the adventurers who are in the Set of Watch universe. Each round, four polyhedral dice are rolled, then you select two of them to craft items, or research enchantments for your shop. As you craft items and research spells, you start stocking items and earn potions that let you manipulate the dice. Adventurers travel from shop to shop, so you need to stock the exact items on the order cards in front of you. If you have an item adventurer needs, you earn a coin, but if you wait too long to fulfill an order, Adventurers will become impatient and visit your competitor next door. After 10 rounds, the player who has earned the most coin wins. So I am usually not a big roll and write fan. I haven't played too many that have really captured my attention. But when a roll and write comes along that really grabs me, it grabs me. Merchants of Magic is very good as it uses four different types of dice. They use a d6, a d8, a d10, and a d12. Each round, these are rolled, and you take the numbers, and you write them on your little sheet, which represents your shop, and you try to fill in the circles with a certain number requirements via bingo style. It's a bingo style game, so if you roll a 12, you can roll anything that maybe has a 12 or below, or maybe an 11 up. It's, it's pretty versatile what is on the sheet. But, to represent adventurers trying to come around and take stuff from your shop, there is a group of cards that are passed around the table. Each round you have about three cards in front of you, and if you meet the requirements by filling in the little bubbles on your sheet, you can take those cards, representing the adventurers paying you coin. After that, you refill the card onto your little tableau sheet, and you pass it to the left. So each round, after the 10 rounds, you'll have a new set of cards. This game plays one to eight players, is for 10 plus, and plays about 45 to 60 minutes. Now, What's great for me is that I was able to play this with the designer, Clarence, who was testing out some new expansions that are coming along the way for this game. And I gotta tell you, the expansions are great. I'm looking forward to them, and when this comes out, I, if you already don't have the base game, I suggest you get them. And if you do have the base game, it's gonna make the gameplay experience even better. But I wanna circle back and talk about the base game. What makes this game so great, and why I love it so much, is that the variety of options really drive you to make interesting decisions. You have to not only plan for the cards in front of you, you have to plan for the cards that are 10 spaces ahead of you as well. It's all about getting the most points and also trying to fulfill certain requirements that may be out there on the board. You have an adventurer you're trying to sponsor, they have certain requirements, but you're also trying to make sure the adventurers who come into your store get what they need as well. 
And what really makes this game shine is that you're able to plan out just right to make amazing combos. There are times when you're just filling out one, maybe two bubbles at a time, and then eventually, pop, you're able to actually get, you know, 10 circles filled in with just the right combination stuff and able to collect all the cards you need. It really does provide a system of combo-tastic results that really make you feel clever and also make the game feel like it's worth playing. Most rolling lights I play don't give me this feeling. I've played games, you know, like Railroad Inc. Didn't love it whatsoever. It felt really droll to me. Felt like you were doing the same thing each time, even with the dice rolls. I've played other games like Yahtzee. Yahtzee doesn't really go for it for me either. I just tend to not like the roll and write genre or even flip and write genre. It just doesn't stick with me as a gamer, but this game hit all the right spots and all the right places. But why is this lost loot? Well, for one, Set of Watch is a pretty popular game. And when most people see this, they actually think it's an expansion to Set of Watch from my experience. They look at the game store and for some reason they set Set of Watch right next to, you know, Merchants of Magic. And they don't know what set of watches, and so they take that, and they don't want to get the expansion first. This is just my experience working at a board game store. Actually, when I was there working, my game store set, set Merchants of Magic in the cooperative game area. I correctly put it back into the Rollerite area, because I knew it would sell better, and knew it would actually be an accurate description of what the game is. Sometimes when publishers try to combine a universe together into like a game theme or something like that, like Rock Manor's doing with Set of Watch and Merchants of Magic... It can run the risk of a game getting lost behind a more popular title. So Set of Watch is a very popular title, and putting Merchants of Magic in the same universe can help it, but also can hinder it, where people are not exactly sure what the game is and might just go with Set of Watch instead. And me, personally really loving this game, thinks that it would be better served if people understood, no, it's its own game, it's a roll and write, and it's really good. It is really, really good. And all things considering, like, eight-player count for a game as crunchy as this is awesome. Lots of rolling rights. You can play you know, up to 100 players. All you need is a dice to roll. You know, that's fine. But really, it gives you pretty much a multiplayer solitaire feeling, which is fine. It's fine in lots of aspects. People really like those games sometimes. But this game has a tableau of cards and a set of adventurers that are all interconnected with each other. And it really makes you think about what the other players may be trying to do and trying to time it just right and time your rolls just right to where you have the set of requirements for the card that's in front of you when the time comes. And that planning is what really makes this game great. There are so many options for you to do with the expansions coming out that's going to open up a whole new world of opportunities for this game to shine. Adventurers, this is a fantastic game, quality of production, and holy cow, I hope more people learn about this. Big rolling rights, flipping rights right now. You got like three sisters, Hadrian's Wall. Those are all great, but my understanding, they're pretty complex and there's a lot to them. Rolling rights are getting more and more complicated as we go. I mean, look, they're coming off a Twilight Imperium rolling right. An hour and a half to two hour rolling right. To me, that does, I don't know. I look, I want, I, I don't know how Patrick feels about this. I know he's a huge Twilight Imperium fan, so it might be for him. But to me, I am very hesitant to jump into a two hour rolling right. But, a nice 45-minute roll and write between, you know, one and eight players sounds fantastic. I've also had the opportunity to play this solo, and the solo mode works really well, too. You have basically faux adventurers in front of you, the cards are still rotating, and you can play by yourself. But they're coming out with new opportunities for the solo mode to shine as well. I am just super pumped because a good solo roll and write is hard to come by for me. 
And if you are hesitant like me when it comes to solo role rights or role rights in general, I highly, highly recommend this game as a place to start and give the genre a chance. Well, adventurers, that's going to do it for me. Remember, I believe Merchants of Magic is a lost loot because not only does it get lost in the set of watch universe a little bit, it also get lots in the slew of rolling rights. There's tons and tons of rolling rights out there, lots of good ones and lots of bad ones. This, I think, and I believe, is a great one. Please give it a try if you see it on your shelf. It's a wonderful, wonderful design and will give you a new game each time you play it. Well, adventurers, that's it for me today. And remember, when you're going through the millions and millions of roller rights on BGG, whether it's the Twilight Inscriptions, the Railroad Inc., or the For Sale, keep your eye out for maybe a roller right you haven't heard of. You never know when you might find some lost loot. Interesting that he picked Merchants of Magic. I had that on the list to talk about today. Whenever I saw that he was using it for the Lost Loot, I was like, well, I'm not going to be talking about Merchants of Magic in this episode. Fantastic little game. Thank you so much, Josh. Scott, have you played this one? I have not, but looking at it, it's a set of watch tale, and it seems very much like a set of watch is becoming a very similar universe as Thunderworks cartographers and role player, where they're building this whole universe out of one game and it just adds on to it and creates this whole new world. The original set of watch people love that. And this just keeps building on it. And mm-hmm. I think it's a fantastic addition there. It looks like, you know, it's a roll and write that we had a chance to play at the vault at our last meetup. Some of the folks that went to origins with us, uh, I know, uh, uh, Kyle, Kyle put it in his, uh, top surprises from origins, mm-hmm. uh, games that, that he found that he thought were a little underrated or under the radar. And, uh, that one was broken out at the game day. Scott, it's a roll and write where you're actually interacting with the other players and that you have to keep an eye on what cards are coming around. I'm not huge on roll and writes. I like them. I love cartographers. Yes. This one is, it feels different. It feels different than your typical fill stuff in. Just fill stuff in. Uh, this, this one, you have a lot of agency over where you're doing it, why you're doing, uh, what you're doing and what's coming down the pike. I, I like it. Yeah. Looking at the pictures, I mean, with all the little vials of potions, the different dice you're going to be using. Yeah. I can see there's a lot of stuff in this that takes it away from just your typical roll and write game. Maybe I'll look and see if I can't pick up a copy whilst at Gen Con, because I'd like you to play this one with me. I think you'd have a good time with it. I'd definitely be down for it. All right, Scott, it's time for some adventures on the horizon. And today we're talking about a two to four player game designed by Liam Burns and on Kickstarter August 7th. Handsome Monkey Games presents Journey into the Beyond. Now, this is one that I've had the chance to play with Liam actually on Tabletop Simulator, and I even had a hard copy before passing it on to the next reviewer, so uh, a little familiar with this game at this point. This is a game that presents itself as a bit of a tabletop RPG, and that it presents a bit of story throughout the gameplay. Now, at its core, this is a card game with a board chock full of adventure spaces. The board represents Ragnarwald, a bit of a purgatory world, as the characters you play have all died, and their only escape from this underworld is by defeating the gatekeeper housed at the top of the board. Variable, I should say. There are multiple different gatekeepers that the players can opt to face. Now, at the start of the game, each player chooses a character, and they get their opening deck of cards. The characters, they're quite unique from each other. 
Loremaster falls into the category of like a classic wizard, whereas the Wanderer is going to play out like a fighter that wants to throw some punches. You then get to further this asymmetry and build your character by selecting three events from a deck of five that you're going to shuffle into your starting deck. Now it turns pretty innocent here. You get to move your character up to five spaces on the board. And a lot of gameplay is going to revolve around the various spaces on the board that you're going to interact with, like some might have creatures, dungeons, or triggered effects, for example. All right. Now, depending on the space, you draw from the top of that specific deck and you resolve the encounter. Now, there's also spaces that let you get some loot or spend some coin, namely the potion shop, the mausoleum, and the blacksmith, each giving you chances to add cards to your tableau in front of you, increasing your powers and abilities. And what does it all come down to? Well, the first player to kill the gatekeeper, who is the very powerful enemy at the top of the board, is going to win the game. Okay, so let's start where we always do, the art and components. Well, as far as art and components, this was a prototype copy, so it is a tad early to make any sort of a definitive judgment. You've got tokens and cards mostly, and they are all well done. Now, that said, the artwork, it it wasn't for me. It was a minimalist style that has an old school charm that I think some gamers are really going to appreciate. But for me, I prefer to see more, I don't want to say like a polished style, but something with more vibrant backgrounds and a little bit more flavor uh, than the presentation in Journey into the Beyond. Okay. Is this a complex game? While you're playing it, no. Uh, But to get started, it is a little bit tricky because there is a lot going on in this game. Now, I think some of this has to do with working off of a prototype rulebook, which while that included everything necessary, there is a lot to cover in the game. Okay. You have decks for various shops, decks for items, encounters, events, and more. Plus, you have asymmetric characters that in some cases have a very specific setup and very specific abilities depending on who you chose. All right. That's not a bad thing because these character-specific setups lead to very asymmetric abilities between the heroes. And I think this is going to make each play feel unique and ensure that you're going to have like a different experience when you change your characters. But it does make for more things that you're going to have to wrap your head around. Thus, I think it is a little bit more complex in that regard. Scott, there are 24 keywords in this game that can be found on cards. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yes, there, there's a reference in the back of the rule book, but that is a lot. Uh, now, a, a counter-argument, you know, playing devil's advocate here, a counter-argument might be that Magic the Gathering has a billion keywords. So I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. It's just something that you have to be aware of going in, that there is more complexity here than you might be used to in, in your average. Scott, this is our classic case of a game not having anything that's overly difficult, but instead having a lot of unique things happening, which when culminated can make for very asymmetric and differentiated gameplay, but that in, in turn is going to mean that you're going to have a little bit more complexity. All right, sure, but who's this game for? Who's going to want to back Journey into the Beyond? Well, Journey into the Beyond does a lot that I like. Namely, the decisions that you get to make with your character at the start of play, they make me feel clever. They make me feel unique. And throughout the game, I get to do things that other people don't get to do. I'm not just picking the character that the game dictates, but I get to craft the character to my liking from the start. And I like that. And further... There are a lot of moments in this game where you're going to feel powerful, primarily when you can like chain a card or two together that interact with your state-based cards that are built up in your tableau. I mean, you can start the game able to deal like five or six damage, and over time, that is going to ramp up tremendously, and you feel this progression. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, when you die in the game, 
it's not backbreaking. Like you can run into creatures, you can lose health, and eventually, yes, you can be killed, but it isn't backbreaking. I think that's a good design decision. Okay, well, let's let's elaborate. You lose like one item, and then you just respawn at the beginning. So really, not the end of the world, right? I think that was a good design decision because this allows for you to to be a little bit reckless. It allows for player versus player combat, which you can do in a competitive game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does so in a way that you're not like just dead, or or worse yet, you have to trudge along with no chance. Uh, and even then. If you don't want to be combating each other, like I said, the game does have a co-op mode, so you can work together if that's what you prefer. Right. Get on that Kickstarter page August 7th and check it out for yourself, Adventures. The game is Journey Into the Beyond. All right, Adventurers. It comes to that time of the show now where, if you're my age, you hear the Donnie Marie music for the end of their show coming on, and you get all <laughs> sad thinking it's almost bedtime. But here at Level Up, we like to look back and see over the past couple of weeks what we did to kind of level up and make us a little bit of better of a person or something that we're really proud of during the time that we Wait, were away. Is that the show that goes, Good night, John Boy? No, I was part of that one too, because they always called me Elizabeth since my last name is Walton. So yes, I got that too. And I got uh did anyone ever call you John Boy? Whenever I was at work and people I just look at them like deadpan. No. Wow. That's really ingenious. <laughs> Quite clever of you. Yes. Scott, tell me, how'd you level up since our last episode? Well, this is going to be my annual shout out to my fraternity brothers and our camp out. Once again, we had some guys that made ridiculous treks from across the country almost to get back here to little old Pennsylvania and just hang out for the weekend in tents and make stupid decisions and hang out together. Saw one brother I haven't seen in probably 15 years, Jughead. He brought his girlfriend in, and it was great to see him again. So many laughs, so many mistakes, and so many memories for this weekend. That is how I leveled up. Now, how did you do that? And there's no chance that you injured your calf or Achilles, right? Achilles, no. Calf, maybe. (laughs) You're getting too old for this, Scott. Oh, 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 I know, I know. But I'm still going to do it. Scott, my level up this episode is actually going to be a shout out to a random dude named Chris. Uh, I've scrolled through Facebook and somebody posted, hey, any uh, any suggestions for podcasts to listen to? And Chris threw in level up. He said, yeah, I'm really liking this podcast, that podcast and level up board game podcast. And man, I tell you what, that just that makes my heart happy anytime I see that. So thank you so much to Chris and and a, a little level up for for the show and, and for me this week that that's yeah, that's what I got. That is, yeah, I, I agree with you. Whenever you scroll through and it, someone asks just for, what do you guys listen to? And you happen to see us listed on there. It does. It means more than what I'm getting paid in my salary here. <laughs> that much more whenever we see that. It, it's such a special, special thing there. So, yeah, that is fantastic. Adventures, thank you so much for joining us for episode 68 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Keep your ears open for episode 69, dudes. I don't know if this is going to be familiars and foes. We've got that coming down the pike as a side quest. Plus, we're going to have our post-Gen Con wrap-up. We're going to tell you all about all the shenanigans and cool stuff that we found at Gen Con. Scott, you have the last word as always. Crap. I can't think of one. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. 
We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.